The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. Our scripture text this morning is from the Gospel of John in chapter 15. John 15, 12 to 17. Every element of today's service has been pointing us to the expression of God's love. Have you noticed that, PB? Did you plan this? You didn't plan this, did you? The Holy Spirit worked this out. From that video that our service began with, did you see that? Some of you missed that, I know. But uh, that Jewish fellow was talking about he was struggling with depression and felt unloved until he came to know the love of Jesus. And then for the first time in his life, watch for that video. We'll post it. And then these songs, (laughs) Bill's communion meditation, And then your very, very timely message from this text. Uh, And you'll you'll know what I mean when I say timely uh, as you hear it. Or as you watch the, or as you read the email that I feel is coming on in me right now. If you're not signed up for our email, you can do so at our homepage. Jesus said, according to John 15 and verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Let's pray. Father, it's true you have loved us, not while we were at our best, but when we were at our worst. Having been loved with so great a love, Father, let us turn and love one another and encourage our love for each other through our pastor's preaching this morning. By the power of your Holy Spirit, I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, Jesus really does call us friends. That should, man, that should land on us as being amazing. Friends. In the Proverbs we read, a friend loves at all times. A friend sticks closer than a brother. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. In other words, a friend's going to tell us the truth because they love us. They want to help. Friends are an important part of life. And I bet that you can look back over your life and, and see different points in your life And those points will be based on your friends, different friends that you've had 
at different points in your life. Uh, for me, I think of my grade school years and, and uh, mostly the neighborhood because uh, I think of Scott Hoffine, a boy that was a couple years older than me who uh, guided me, told me, you know, how to do sports and, and advised me on the important areas of the social aspects of grade school and how things work and how things will work in junior high and so on. He, uh, you know, we built forts together. We played sports together, baseball in the street and basketball in, in our driveway and football in our front yard. And when it came to those forts, I think of uh, wintertime. We used to get a lot of snow in in uh, my neighborhood, the thing was to build these forts in the front yard. You'd have snowball fights. And, of course, you'd have other kids on other, other houses that would have their forts. And the thing to do would be to go out at night and to wreck the other person's fort. So Scott taught me, you know, we, we would uh, build a fort. We put plywood in the walls, covered it with snow, poured water over it so it had ice over, and then watched the kids rub their shoulders the next day because they were trying to write. So I think of my grade school years, and, and you know, Scott introduced me to firecrackers and blowing up rotten pears and doing all sorts of mischief in the neighborhood. So if you lived around Crater Lake Avenue and Roberts Road in the 70s, I'm sorry. That was probably me doing what, leaving something on your step or something. I don't know. Um, you know, then I think of junior high, uh, Brad Jones, I think of high school and, and uh, Wes Holden and Brian Morris and Todd Shelton playing basketball, traveling all over the state into these little high school gyms and, and just the great times that we had. I think of uh, the time of my life with marriage and my best friend of all, Jennifer, and then the different friends throughout our marriage that have been so special to us. And in really happy times, good times, and, and in, in difficult times. So friends are important. They're enriching. They're a defining part of life. And so how incredible is it that Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, the incarnate God of the universe, that he would speak of our relationship to him as a friendship, Amazing. It's incredible because our friends, if you think about it, our friends tend to be like us. They tend to be, they don't tend to be, you know, someone really famous. It should be shocking. You know, like my, I, my good friend Michael Jordan and I, we hang out all the time and, oh, who put that up? You guys found that picture on the web or something. But anyway, I bet you didn't know this. You know, that, that we share our hopes and dreams together. You know, give each other some advice. And, um, you know, hang out, call and text each other nearly every day. Um, you know, I was thinking also, I taught the teen class, and I bet there are some kids here that don't even know who Michael Jordan is, sad to say. Um, he's a really famous basketball player. Anyway, it would be unusual. It's an unusual friendship because typically... We, our friends, are similar. They have the same, you know, economic level, education, age, um, interests. And I know that you, 
you must be thinking, you know, why would Pastor Brian lower himself to hang out with Michael? Well, I'm a nice guy. That's why. Anyway, so how incredible is it (laughs) that Jesus, the greatest, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the one worthy of all praise, our maker, that he describes himself as our friend. And sometimes we may even cringe at the thought, at this description, as if it it means a lack of reverence, and that Jesus is someone that we can treat like, like in a casual, buddy kind of way. But don't cringe, because this is Jesus' description. He's the one who said it. He's the one who calls us friends. And being his friend doesn't mean that we um, don't obey him as Lord also, that he's not one who gives us commands. When he says, no longer do I call you servants, he's not saying that we're not obligated to serve, to recognize his authority over us. No, he explains this by saying, a servant does not know what his master is doing. So we are his servants. We are slaves to Christ. We owe him everything. We are obligated to him. He is our master. He is our Lord. But he treats us like friends. He shares what masters don't typically share with mere servants. Instead of just telling us what's required of us, he brings us, he brings us in. He invites us to dream, to participate by giving us the inside scoop of what the Father's plan and purpose for our life is. So it's amazing. As high as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are his ways higher than our ways and his thoughts higher than ours. One author points out that Jesus is infinitely superior to us in his being, station, majesty, authority, knowledge, holiness, and power, and yet, He says to us, you are my friends. And we became his friends, not because we were better than the rest, not because we were special or more perceptive or thoughtful or wise. No, it was him. It was because of what he did. It's his grace. It's his choice. Jesus said, you did not choose me. Yes, he's speaking to his disciples, but this truth is true for us as well because it involves the fruit that we are to bear. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. We were brought near to him because of love, because of his sacrifice, laying down his life for us. And we recognize this 13th verse in our text that there is no greater love than laying down your life for a friend. And we think of all sorts of stories where we hear of a person giving their own life to save another, heroic deaths of first responders at 9-11 or the many daily events involving police and firefighters and hospital workers and those in the military. We can think of a lot of examples. We hear Stories like the one that James Boyce tells. He tells of a, of a grandfather and a grandson going fishing in a boat on a river. 
in West Virginia. He says, neither of them could swim, and the child fell overboard and was drowning, so the man jumped in to save his grandson, but both of them drowned. Afterwards, when they found the bodies, the grandfather still had the young child clutched in his arms. He had been so anxious to save his grandson that he had not even opened up his arms to attempt to swim and save his own life. And we hear of heroic sacrifices like this, and we sometimes call them Jesus-like. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. When we hear of these stories, we go silent. We're struck with an awe of someone considering another person's life so valuable that they'd risk and ultimately sacrifice their own. And it's beautiful, and it's inspiring. And Jesus is the ultimate reality of this kind of love. The loving sacrifice of Jesus is so exceedingly wonderful, so much beyond any, any human act of bravery that we probably shouldn't even call the human ones Jesus-like. But in a much lesser way, they are comparable. And Jesus tells us to love each other like he has loved us. So there must be some kind of comparison. There must be some, some level of imitation that we are to do. But before thinking of the imitation, I want to I spend some time considering the differences to elevate the sacrifice and love of Christ, to think of the differences for as wonderful and praiseworthy as our human examples may be, Jesus is unique. First, let's remember that Jesus did not have to die. So his sacrifice is different. He did not have to die. Sooner or later, we're going to die. And this doesn't diminish a person's sacrifice, but Jesus' death is an infinitely higher category because he alone possessed a life that did not have to die. Death had no power over him. Our death is unavoidable. But his, if he willed it, it could have been avoided. We, we are mortal, and therefore we must die. But Jesus was immortal. And so death was, death was intrinsically inevitable. Uh, um, death was not intrinsically inevitable for him. In fact, intrinsically speaking, he is life. He declared, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus, he could have, think about it, he could have come to this world, he could have taught, he could have performed miracles, he could have done these wonderful acts of ministry, and then returned to heaven without ever experiencing death. He did not have to die, but it was obviously God's plan, God's purpose that he did. But for the rest of us, here's the reality for us. We read, it's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Giving our lives um, is great love. It's admirable. It's heroic. But our death is also inevitable. 
It would have come anyway. We just died sooner. And my purpose in bringing this up isn't to diminish these heroic and selfless acts, but that we might rightly appreciate the difference, the greater level of love of Jesus' sacrifice. He didn't just shorten what was inevitable. He did not need to die at all. He could have avoided death, but instead he chose to die. He chose to experience what was truly unnatural and avoidable for him for the sake of you, for the sake of his friends. Secondly, Jesus' loving sacrifice was different in that he knew that he would die. He knew that he would die. When people do heroic acts, they put themselves in danger, but they probably expect that they're going to survive. They know that it's possible that they'll die, and it's amazing that they would take this risk, but they, they don't really know. I imagine the hope is that that they'd escape and save the person that they are wanting to save. People, they take calculated risks and sometimes they die. But they don't often die deliberately. Jesus, according to his own testimony, deliberately went to the cross to die so that we might be saved. Third, Jesus died for us while we were his enemies. People don't tend to die or give themselves for their enemies. We may give ourselves for strangers. We may give ourselves for ungrateful people, but generally not for enemies. And yes, in our text, Jesus says that he's laying down his life for his friends, but how did we become his friends? Did God choose the good ones who were nice and deserving of his kindness? That's not the gospel. That's not the biblical description. That's not grace. None of us were deserving in any way. Scripture tells us in Romans 5 that it was while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. In God's economy, a sinner is a rebel, not a friend. Jesus could say that he lays down his life for his friends because he understood that his death would make us his friends. He understood that before we were even born, God loved us as friends. He understood this cosmic reality described in Romans 8, that those who do love God are those who are called. They are called by God for his purposes. We love God. We are friends of God because of God's actions toward us. Because for those whom God foreknew, for those whom God determined before the creation of the world to love, that's what foreknew means, for those whom God was determined to love, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Before we were born, before we had, any, had done anything good or bad, God chose to love us. He chose to make us his friends. He didn't look down some corridor of time and pick the winners, pick the friendly ones. No, Scripture says none were righteous. No, not one. 
All were disobedient. None were seeking after God. And this is grace. This is the grace of God. His choosing, his electing love connecting us to Jesus. In fact, this is what Jesus says in John 6, 37. Jesus says, all that the Father gives me. So the Father's in his foreknowledge, his decision to love a people before they can do anything good or bad. Based upon his choice, the Father's electing love, he gives a people to his Son. Jesus is describing this. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. We come to Jesus only because the Father determined to give us to Jesus. We love because he first loved us. And Jesus is a faithful friend. He won't turn any away who come to him. And he will see them through all of life until the last day. So Jesus didn't die for believing and obedient friends. He died for sinners, for us, while we were his enemies. And this is the undeserved favor of God. This is the gracious and merciful love of Jesus for us. And another reason that Jesus' sacrificial love for us is far superior to any human act of love is that his death was more than physical. It was spiritual. If we were to give our lives for someone, our death would only be physical, not spiritual. We can't die spiritually for someone. We can't take their place so that they might be, might be right with God. This is what Paul describes in Romans 9. This is what he wished for when he said, that he had great sorrow for his kinsmen, the Jews, those who were not trusting in Jesus. Paul wrote with anguish. His love for them was so great that he wrote, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. We might have someone, um, we might save someone physically, at the expense of our physical life, but we can't save someone spiritually through any sacrifice of our own. Only Jesus can die to save someone's soul. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. We can't do that. This is spiritual death. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Death is separation. Physical death is the separation of the soul from the body, and spiritual death is the separation of the soul from God. And this is why hell is such a terrible place. All of the goodness of God that believers and unbelievers enjoy in this life, whatever pleasure or joy or goodness and delight and love that we experience is a gift of God, and hell will Hell will not be the absence of God because God is omnipresent. Hell is the absence of God's mercy and his goodness and his blessing and his common grace that people take for granted every day. 
His presence will be there, but it will be the opposite. It will be his just and holy wrath. There is no, people talk about a party in hell. There is no party in hell because there is no form of enjoyment, even sinful enjoyment. Pleasure is God's idea. It's his gift to us. And this separation from the, from the blessing and goodness of God, this is what Jesus endured for you, for me. He was able to die in this way for us so that we might never have to experience it. This horrible separation from God is what Jesus expressed on the cross when he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The goodness and blessing and friendship and favor of God, something God the Son had always known was gone. How great the pain of searing loss. The father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. And this reality is, I don't get it. I can't comprehend it. How the second person of the Godhead could experience separation, being forsaken by God the father, Yes, there's a human aspect of Christ, fully man, fully God, but he experienced hell, separation from God for you. And I don't understand it, but this is what he did. There is no sacrifice, no love that we could do that compares to this. Incomparably greater than anything that we can do, and yet, we are told to love each other in a similar way, in a way that Jesus expects, because he says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. There is this flow of love in this 15th chapter of John that begins with the the father to the son, and then the son loving us in the same way that the father loves him. And then he tells us to love each other as he has loved us. It really fits with this illustration of the vine and the branches, doesn't it? It's all connected. And the fruit that comes out. How has Jesus loved us should be our question. We don't earn his love. So then how should we love each other? We should be gracious to one another. There is no favoritism with his love toward us, and so we shouldn't create categories, categories of partiality toward one another. Nothing related to race or gender, education, finance, status, nothing to do with power or influence, no partiality. Now, in fact, God chose what? God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak to shame the strong. He chose what is low and despised so no human being might boast in his presence. He loved rebels. So shouldn't we love those with whom we strongly disagree? There are some strong disagreements going on in our world in general, right? 
If you think someone's foolish, don't forget that God loved you. If Jesus chose to love us in spite of our sin and wrong thinking, our unforgiveness, our self-righteousness, then shouldn't we seek unity above our personal preferences and love people, warts and all? And this command of Christ doesn't require that we that we stick our heads in the sand and ignore important earthly matters. But it should mean that we prioritize. That's the point, right? We're not going to agree on everything. We won't. You're not going to convince someone about this or that. But if they're your brother or sister in Christ, there's something far surpassing that goes beyond that. And Jesus says, you need to love them like I love you which means that our love for one another should resemble the grace and the patience and the kindness that Jesus has shown us. We don't deserve it. Our love for one another is a much higher priority than the politics of our day. Remember, if Jesus is harsh with anyone, and he was, it was with people who say they represent God and yet lack his love and his grace and his forgiveness. Jesus' love to us is greater than anything that we can do because he is God, because of his unique nature. But still, we are told that we are to bear fruit because we're connected to him. Apart from him, we can do nothing. But because we are his friends, because we have been saved, because he flows through us by the Holy Spirit, bearing good fruit, we not only can, but we must. We're commanded to love each other in a way that's similar. That's similar to his love for us, that glorifies this love of Christ for us. And if there is no fruit, then there is no assurance. There is no assurance that you are Jesus' friend. But you can be. You can know him as your friend. If you come to him and confess your sin and acknowledge your need of him as your savior, he will be your best friend. The best friend possible. Verse 13 might cause us to ask the question, is Jesus my friend? But verse 14 gives the other side to that question, which is, am I Christ's friend? And he tells us how we can know. He says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. And the good news is that because he lovingly sacrificed himself for us, you know, the The gospel is not WWJD. Remember those? What would Jesus do? The gospel is not just imitating. We can't do what Jesus did. The good news is that Jesus lovingly sacrificed himself for us because he's done what we cannot do. We're not left to obey him on our own. No, if you abide in him, then he abides in you. His spirit indwells you and changes you, and you can't help but bear fruit. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. 
we hear obey and command, and we often just think, oh, burden. They're not burdensome. How? How are they not burdensome? It's no longer a burden because you're his friend. And as friends, now you want to do it. You want to obey him. You want to please him. You want to glorify him. If Jesus had required us to do all that he did, it would be impossible to become his friends. His loving sacrifice is beyond us, but still... He did give us a command with right expectations. He did say that we can be his friends if we'll only do what he commands. In other words, we show our friendship to him through our obedience. And obedience is active, as the book of James describes. It's continuous, as this illustration of the vine points out. And obedience should be in all things, because if we pick and choose, then who's really the master? Who's really Lord? Jesus said, you are my friends if you do. So talk is cheap. Knowing the right thing to do and failing to do it is, according to James, sin. So our obedience must be active. It must be doing and not simply saying. It must be, it's more than avoiding things. Obedience is not just a list of don'ts without any do's. It's not simply the negative side. It's also the positive side of action. Doing practical things for one another that will encourage their faith. That will cause people to know that they are loved and cared for by God by what you have done, hands and feet of Jesus, helping with yard work, running errands, dropping off a meal, sign up for the meals ministry, send a note, which really stands out. Every once in a while, I'll get, you know, in the mail, the paper stuff, I'll get a note. It's like, wow, text is great, email is great, I'll take that. I love communicating when someone takes the time to write one of those paper things, that's really, that's special. There are, there are just all sorts of practical ways and thoughtful ways for us to actively show the love of Christ for one another. And maybe when you do it to someone who knows that you're of a different point of view on something, it's really going to stand out then. It's really going to communicate that our Christian unity is infinitely more important than our earthly disagreements. And that glorifies God. Pray for one another. Gathering to worship together as people who don't agree on everything. And I don't want to paint a picture. You know, I think, maybe I'm just ignorant, but I think Bear Creek Church is doing a pretty decent job of loving one another. I hear, I'm, my concern, and I keep bringing this up, because I hear about so much division within churches, and it just saddens me, and it concerns me. We can't go there. If we just become about one side or the other side politically, we've ceased to be a church. We're about, we're a club, and we need to be a church. So it concerns me. I'm not, I'm not saying this in a corrective sense so much, but in a protective way. Yes, there's, all, there's always instances I need to 
settle down sometimes, and you need to, and, and let these things go and love one another in practical ways. But I just want you to know that I, I don't think there's anything really big going on, so don't worry. But just as far as you're concerned, if you're wrestling in your heart towards someone on, a, on an issue, love them. That glorifies God. Also, our obedience should be continuous. Yes, there are seasons of life where we can't do as much as we used to do, but we can be creative and find other ways. There is no retirement from loving each other. Our faith is one of endurance. If we obey and then we quit, then we're like that branch that dries up and doesn't bear any more fruit. If it's only on Sundays or it's only when we feel like it, then this kind of love does not even resemble the love of Jesus. Jesus' command gives the idea of continuous action, not just do, but doing. So he intends for us to show his love day after day, year after year, for the rest of our lives. And this is one of the conclusions of this fruit-bearing illustration or other illustrations regarding various plants. So when a plant does not, not bear fruit, when a branch stops bearing fruit, it's useless. It's in, in God's mind, it's fruit, fruitless religion. It's worthless. So again, continuous work, it may sound like a burden, but it really isn't. It really isn't. It really should be our joy. When we realize that it's a matter of Christ's love, when we see that it's the fruit of the Holy Spirit, which is a blessing to those around us, this is why you exist. And it gives us joy, it gives us purpose, and it glorifies our very best friend, Jesus. Finally, our obedience is to be in all things. God tells, God's word is truth. It is authoritative. 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us all scripture is breathed out by God. All scripture. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And in it is everything that we need for life and godliness. But if we, if we pick and choose... If we stick to our favorite verses and ignore the ones that make us uncomfortable or, or that challenge our particular area of theology, then we really can't obey God in all things. And sadly, we don't want to end up like Tom. Don't be a Thomas Jefferson who apparently did his devotions with scissors, liking to cut out the portions that he didn't think applied to him being the authority, being God. It began with doubting the Trinity and then the miracles in the Old Testament and the miracles in the New. No, it's all or nothing. If we pick and choose what to believe, what to obey, then haven't we made ourselves the authority? If Jesus is our Lord as well as our friend, then we will humbly ask him, Lord, what would you have me do? And if we really mean it, we will find ourselves encouraged and empowered to do what he wants. And not simply as a, as a slave, but as a friend. 
Is Jesus your friend? Is Jesus your friend? If not, he can be. Turn from your sin. Look to him in faith. He's the best friend that you could ever possibly have. And this leads to our response asked in the question, are you Christ's friend? If so, it will increasingly become your joy to do what he commands, to actively and continuously in all things do what he commands. So may the Holy Spirit fill us with the love of Christ so that we bear much fruit for his glory. Let's pray together. Lord, this is our prayer, that you would enable us to do what you command, giving us joy in it, that you would change our hearts in areas that need to be changed so that we find ourselves wanting to love our brothers and sisters in Christ, even the ones that we (laughs) disagree with, especially the ones that we disagree with. And that this unity, this love within the church would then flow out to our neighbors, showing them the love of Christ. Lord, guard us from the important, though infinitely smaller, concerns of this world. Guard us from making them so big that they become excuses for not obeying you, for not loving others in the gracious and sacrificial way that you've loved us. Thank you for your unique and infinitely great sacrifice that has made us your friends. May we truly love being your friends, spending time with you and hearing from you and glorifying you with our lives. We ask this, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.